All right, I've got a, a lesson for you this morning I'm real excited to share with you. So without any further ado, let's just get into the Word of God. I'm in Luke chapter 3, in verse 2. And here's what it says. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, we're in chapter 3. Last week, if you remember, we were in chapter 2, and John the Baptist and Jesus were born. And here we are in chapter 3, and John's already 30 years old and into ministry. And that's kind of the pattern of how the Bible works. It just jumps to the time that's significant for that part of the story. And so between chapter 2 and chapter 3, we've got 30 years. From the birth of John, with the announcement to Zechariah that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, 30 years later, to him starting his ministry. And here's what it says about him. He went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, if you start reading your Bible in Genesis and read all the way through to Luke, this is the first time you're going to read about baptism. I mean, Matthew and Mark are the same story, so I'm considering that the same thing. But that's a problem because it's not the first time it occurs in the Bible. In fact, by the time we're here in Jewish history, baptism is a huge practice. Thing is, they didn't call it baptism. And even though Jewish people still do this today, they don't know it by baptism. So if you would ask a Jewish person, is baptism part of the Jewish culture? They'd say no. But if you would say, do you know anything about mikvah? And they'd say, oh yeah, it's part of the Jewish culture. That's the word the Jewish people use. So without the background, we miss a lot. It's just like one day a prophet decides to dunk people. Where did that come from? It didn't just show up that one day. It had a long history tied to it. So I'm going to take you through the history of where this started. And it started with Moses at Mount Sinai. And I've got a picture for you of Mount Sinai. So now you have an idea of what Mount Sinai probably looked like. And here's what happened. God told Moses after he met him at the burning bush to bring the people back there and he would give them the law. So he took them out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, and then he said, listen, I'm going to come down on Mount Sinai in fire. I want you to put up like a gate up around the mountain. Don't let any of the children of Israel approach or they'll die. But before I come, when they're ready to approach the boundaries, they all must bathe. And then they can meet with me on the third day. Bathe? Yeah. Well, okay. You don't want to, you know, come see God with being all stinky. and some, That makes sense. We don't go to work without bathing. We don't go to parties without bathing. Well, you don't want to meet God without bathing. And so, even though the word baptism isn't used there, it's a ceremonial cleansing in preparation for meeting God. So that's the first time baptism occurs, and we're in Exodus, the second book of the Bible. It has a very old history. So God meets with Moses, gives him the Ten Commandments. Everybody listened in on that. And then he met with Moses on other occasions where the people weren't listening in and gave him the rest of the, you know, the five books of Moses. And he said, when your people worship me, this is how you're going to do it. While you're traveling in the wilderness, you're going to have this portable worship tent. You probably heard it called the tabernacle. Well, what's a tabernacle? So it's, it's a tent of meeting. It's like a church on wheels. So wherever they go, they could set up church. But it really wasn't a church because people didn't gather together in a room like this to hear a sermon. It was different. What they did is they set up this tent according to a pattern that God gave them. And when the priest would walk in, there would be this, well, let me show you, this place so he could get cleaned. 
So before he ministered before the Lord, before he brought offerings and sacrifices and prayers, first thing he had to do was get washed. Now this thing, remember, this is, um, what's the word? It goes from place to place. It was mobile. It wasn't a mobile home. It was a mobile temple. And so this little, which called in the King James a laver, is just a washing basin. And before they served God, they had a wash. So this was also a type of ceremony cleansing. Obviously, it was smaller than full body immersion at this point because it was mobile. Couldn't have a huge one. But when the temple was built, a huge one was built, a stationary. Let's take a look. So imagine those are oxes, their actual size. Yeah, it was the size of a small swimming pool. It was, a, or a huge jacuzzi. I mean, it was, this was a pool. And again, you walk into the temple, the part where the priests work, and before they served God, they had to wash themselves. Ceremonial cleanse. Baptism, though they didn't use that word. The big thing that holds water is called mikvah. And that's the word most Jewish people know. Now, one of the highlights of the Israel trip is what are called the Southern Steps. These are steps that the pilgrims use to ascend to the Temple Mount. And they've uncovered many of these steps, and some of them are authentic to the days of Jesus. But all around that whole southern area is just mikvah after mikvah after mikvah after mikvah. They just dug up countless mikvahs, like dozens, hundreds, I don't know, there's lots of them. In fact, I asked one of the guys, how many are here? And he said, ah, millions. There's just a lot. Because when the people came to worship God, they couldn't go to the temple without taking a bath. Well, you can't take a bath two miles away and walk in. You get dirty. Besides, it's not just dirty. It's ceremonial cleansing. You want to come before God totally purified. Some of these mikvahot had one set of stairs going in, one set of stairs going out. And if you touched the guy going in, when you were coming out, you had to turn around and go back in because you touched somebody who was unclean. So this would be a view of one of that area with all the mikvah oak by the southern steps I was telling you about. You're looking at the far end of the Mount of Olives in the background, and these are just pool after pool after pool after pool for these people to be baptized before they went up to the mount. I got a close-up of one of the smaller ones for you. Let's take a look at the next. So, set of stairs, you walk in, and then that long area for you to lay down. Total immersion. Everything gets wet. Everything gets cleaned. Now, these, were these are just dug up after thousands of years. They were probably like covered with mosaic, and they were probably colonnades over the time. I'm not sure, but it was probably very beautiful, very ornate, very modern at the time. Um, I found a... Now, those first two pictures I showed you, those are pictures I took. This next one I just found online. I thought it was cool, so I, I wanted to show it to you. It just looked awesome. This is probably man, maybe a rich man's or something had his own, or maybe a community had one. But uh, to this very day, religious Jews still use a mikvah. Next slide. This would be what a modern one could look like. You know, it's tiled, it's nice, and you, you walk down one side, you lay down in the other. Now, there's different shapes and different designs and different sizes. But Jewish people knew and know all about mikvah. Orthodox men at least once a week, Friday night, in preparation for the Sabbath, they would have a mikvah. Sabbath starts Friday night at sundown. So before they would go to the synagogue, they'd get a mikvah, and they're ready for the Sabbath. Jewish women, at least once a month, to cleanse from their monthly impurity. In fact, the ladies are getting together for breakfast uh, next week, I think it is, and a lady who is an Orthodox Jew in Israel 
who's now a believer and part of our congregation, is going to be there to tell the ladies what it was like going to mikveh. So this is something that Jewish people know and know very well. And in the days of Jesus, there was this sect of people. Um, they're the same guys that hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they're called the guys from Qumran. And they had mikveh sometimes several times a day. And John the Baptist lived in that area. So a lot of people think that John was from Qumran, and that's why he was pushing the whole mikveh thing, because that's what those guys do. Purification, purification, purification. One of the main reasons uh, mikveh was used is if a pagan, an idolater, decided to become a Jew and follow the one true God, the last step of their conversion process was immersion. It's like they went down an idolater and came up a Christian to use the vernacular of today. They went down a pagan and came up a Jew. They went down an unbeliever, came up a believer. They went down to their old life and raised to a new life as if they had been born again. Oh, people knew all about immersion. It was nothing new. But John gave it a new twist. Let me give you the words he used, or the Bible uses about it. A baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now that was new. This wasn't just ritual purification, and this wasn't unbelievers becoming believers. This was for Jewish people to get right with God. You see, there was this concept that because they were Jewish, they were already right with God. The idea was, we're Jews. We worship the one true God. You're a bunch of idolaters. You need to turn and become like us. And John was saying, no, you got it all wrong. Just because you're born Jewish and part of the people that are supposedly worshiping the one true God doesn't mean you yourself are right with God. Just because you're in a nation that teaches the truth doesn't mean you've ever made a commitment to the truth. You, as a Jew, have to turn from your sins and follow God. Now that was new. That was new. John said, you're just like Gentiles. You've got to repent of your sins, be immersed, and be raised to new life. In fact, there's a passage in the Talmud that says, all of Israel has a share in the world to come. And John was saying, oh no, you do not have a share in the world to come just because of who your parents are or the nation you're a part of. You've got to personally get right with God. Luke 3, 8, it said, and here's what John said. He said, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Don't be claiming Jewish heritage as your right with God to make you right with God. It's not going to do it. You've got to get right with God personally on your own terms as an individual, not just as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, John's preaching was intense. He wasn't trying to make friends. He wasn't trying to make people feel good. He was not the Joel Osteen of his day. He was just the opposite. It wasn't like he was trying to make people feel bad, but he was telling the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? I mean, really, you go get a haircut, and you ask somebody, how's my hair look? Man, that's the ugliest haircut I've ever seen. That hurts. And it may be the truth. And so you've got to be careful who you ask and whether you really want the truth or not. Now, some people will be a little more, you know, tactful. My answer to you is, I liked it better the other way. But what I really mean is, that sucks, change it. <laughs> John wasn't tactful. John wasn't here to make people happy. He wasn't here to play games. He was here to help people get saved. 
get right with God. And they had to know that they weren't. And they didn't know that. So he had to tell them, you're a sinner. You're going to go to hell. Stop sinning, get right with God, and you'll be fine. And they flocked to hear him. Which is surprising. Hellfire and brimstone, and everybody loved it. Sometimes people want people to tell them the truth. They don't want... Well, let me ask you this. Two doctors. You get examined by each. First doctor says you're fine. You're the picture of health. The next doctor says you have cancer, but it's treatable. Which doctor are you going to listen to? I'm going to the guy who says I got cancer. This guy just wants me to feel good. That's why he said it. This guy's telling me the truth, and he's going to help me. Now, nobody wants to hear you've got cancer, but if you do have it, you better hear so you can get it treated. So John was the doctor, and he's saying, you've got this disease. It's called sin. There's a cure for it. Repent of your sins and follow God, and you'll be fine. But if you don't, you're going to hell. And there were a lot of people who listened and repented of their sins. Listen to what he said. His preaching was harsh. Verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now don't misunderstand. John was not talking to everybody that way. If you go and look at the other Gospels, he specifically, this part of his sermon, his preaching, is aimed at the scribes and Pharisees who came out. Okay, you don't get that in Luke, but you get that in Matthew. So, I imagine John was pretty patient and temperate with your average person, but extremely impatient with hypocrites. I know that's the case with Jesus. He met this woman at the well, and he had a nice conversation with her, talked to her about being right with God. It was very diplomatic and kind and patient, asked her for a drink, even though she was an adulteress and a half-pagan. She was a Samaritan, kind of really didn't worship God right. But he didn't get on her case. He just tried to gently guide her to the truth. But when the Pharisees and scribes were around, you whitewashed sepulchers, you vipers. And not all the Pharisees and scribes were evil, but as a, as a class of people, they hated him. They were hypocrites. And he told them what's for. Try to set them straight. Now, John's preaching was repent. Jesus' preaching was, guess what? Repent. Same message. I'm from Mark 1, 14 to 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Gospel means good news. Repent is bad news. In order to get saved by the good news, you've got to first hear the bad news. In order to get treated for your cancer, you've got to first be told you have cancer. In order to get saved from your sins, you've got to first be told you have sins. And you've got to recognize and agree with that and come in for the treatment. John and Jesus said, repent. That is the message of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Notice it's not just, like you hear from a lot of people today, believe the gospel. It's not just believe the gospel. It's repent and believe the gospel. And so I would do you a disservice if I sent you home this morning without you completely knowing what repent means. So we're going to take a couple moments to talk about repentance. Uh, two words, recognizing and rejecting. Recognizing sin, rejecting sin. Knowing what sin is in you and then determining within your soul 
to reject it. It originally is based on a Hebrew word that means this. Turn around. You're heading this way in your sinful lifestyle. Turn your back on your sin and head towards God. Repentance is a 180. It's not a 90 or a 45 or... You can't half repent. I love you, God, with half of my heart, half of my soul, half of my might, and I will follow you halfway. God won't take you. God takes all or God takes none. Imagine you've been guys dating a woman for a couple of years and she's just, you realize she's the one. So you sit down with her, you've got this big rock, and you say, honey, we've been dating for a few years now and you're unlike any woman I've ever met. You're amazing. You complete me. Would you marry me? And if you do, I promise to give you half of my affection, half of my heart, for half of my days. She's going to kick you, and you will never see her again. And rightfully so. If a woman and a man deserve 100% of your love, how much does God deserve? Well, 120%, of course. Definitely not less than we would give to another human being. Repentance isn't something that can be 80%, 70%. It's 100%. We follow God or we don't. We turn from our sins or we don't. If you say, God, I will turn from all of my sins except one, because I really like that one. Well, there was a guy who did that. He's called in the Bible, at least people know him by, the rich young ruler. And he came up to Jesus and he said, you know what, I'm a good Jew. I keep all the commandments, but something's missing. What is it? Jesus said, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Basically, Jesus was saying, you love money too much. That's what, you, what you're missing. And what's it say? It says, the man went away sorrowful. And it doesn't say, Jesus said, ah, oh, come on back, it's okay. Jesus let him go because he did not love the Lord God with all his heart. He loved money more than God. So, John tells the people they have to repent. But they wanted to know specifics. And so John gave them specifics. Listen, I'm in verses 10 through 14. They co what should we do then, the crowd asked. And John answered, The man who has two tunics, two coats, should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Some soldiers asked him, said, what should we do? Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. See, John wasn't just given a concept. He was given details. Repentance is detail-oriented. If you repent, you know exactly what you're repenting from. You know, I do this wrong, I do this wrong, and I do this wrong, so I'm going to stop doing this, this, and this. It's not a broad concept. It's a specific concept and a broad concept. And if anything else should enter my mind that I learn God doesn't like, I promise to stop doing that too because I want to follow God, period. That's what repentance is. And so he gave these specifics. And you'll notice, some people, some people he told them to stop doing bad things. 
Other people, he told them to start doing good things. They, maybe there was nothing bad they were doing, per se, but they weren't doing good. You see somebody hungry, feed them. You've got two coats, they got none, give them one. So there were omission sins and commission sins. Sin by not doing something and sin by doing something. Repentance involves both. Stop doing the bad, start doing the good. When I was in uh, Bible college, there was this big debate out. And uh, there was two sides of it. And so they had this, uh, these speakers come in and give both sides of the debate. But the college itself didn't take a position. And I was annoyed. Because to me, it wasn't a debate. There was the right and there was the wrong. There was the truth and there was a heresy. Now, you probably know me very uh, well enough, those of you who have been with me for a while, that I'm pretty laid back. You know, I have my beliefs, but if yours are different, okay, you know, you could be wrong, you could be right. It's not a big deal. I'm not going to hurt you about it. I'm not going to get mad at you. I will guide you if you'll let me into the truth. And in some areas, who knows what the truth is? Nobody knows everything. I'm pretty laid back. It doesn't mean I'm without convictions. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just not going to beat you up over my convictions because your belief is a little different than mine in 95% of the things. I'm not going to call you a heretic, but in 5% of them, I will. And in this area, I was upset because there was right and there was wrong. Here's what ended up happening in this debate. One school of thought said, repentance means you change your mind. It's a synonym with faith. So they were basically saying, you don't have to change your behavior at all. All you have to do is change your mind about who Jesus is, and you'll be saved. Well, what would John say about that? He who has two cloaks, it doesn't matter if you give one to somebody else or not. Your repentance is just changing your mind. And you tax collectors who've been taking too much money from people, that's okay, just change your mind, but keep doing it. And you soldiers who are extorting from people, keep it up, because all you have to do is change your mind. I was so mad. Basically, they're telling people, sin doesn't matter with God, as long as you believe in Jesus. Sin does matter with God. It killed his son. He hates sin. Sin is bad. Stop doing it. Does Jesus save us? Yes. Only Jesus saves us. Works do not save us. We can't do good enough to be saved. But nevertheless, we still should be doing good. And that's what John was saying. Stop sinning. Do good. And these guys are saying, eh, it matters, but not really. No, it matters, really. So I got mad, as you can tell. <laughs> I mean, really. And these guys are theologians. They pastor churches. They write books. And I just want to smack each and every one of them. I mean, don't you read what I'm reading here? Repentance isn't a synonym for faith. It's a step you take on your way to faith. You want to get right with God? Stop doing evil. And they say, nah, you can get right with God either way. No, you can't. You can love God or love sin. You cannot take both. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Nothing less will do. Jesus sent a young man away because he loved money more. But all these pastors are saying, ah, Jesus will take you. No, he won't. He'll take anybody and everybody who repents. There's no sin so bad that he can't forgive it. But you've got to want it to be forgiven and recognize it for what it is, like he does. So John was very harsh in his preaching. 
even more than I'm being right now. He even said, and I'll summarize it and then read you some passages, you can get right with God, and if you don't, you're going to hell. Choose! And they were flocking to him to be baptized because they believed him. They understood. They were a Bible-based culture, and they knew he was right, and the Holy Spirit was working. But he said, if you don't choose the right path, you will go to hell. Listen, I'm in verses 15 through 17. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Messiah or not, John answered. He responded, and he said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now listen to verse 17. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, you're not farmers, and maybe none of this made any sense to you whatsoever. Winnowing fan is in his hand. What does that mean? The way you separate the wheat from the husk that's around it that you cannot eat. There's a couple ways to do it. You stand on a hill where there's always a breeze, and you take a fork full of wheat and you throw it up, and the skin kind of flakes off and blows away. But you could have a winnowing fan to do it, and then when you did, you have to gather up all the, all the husks, all the whatever, chaff it's called. Now, the wheat, you bring into your barn because it feeds people. What do you do with the chaff? It's worthless. It's, it's dirt. It, it's weeds. It's plant matter that you can't use. You burn it in the fire. So what John is saying, you can be wheat or you can be chaff. You can be gathered into the barn, which is heaven, or thrown into the fire, which is hell. He was very straightforward with these people. Now, change gears. John is preaching about these people needing to repent, and they're flooding in. He's baptizing them left and right. Probably had tons of disciples helping him. It's probably like this huge baptism party every day. Lots of people, hundreds of thousands of people getting baptized. And he said, but I'm not the Messiah. He's coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. And then one day, he sees Jesus, and he hollers out, Look! It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can imagine everybody's eyes went, and here comes this guy, just one of the guys. Why did John call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And he walks up to John, and he says, baptize me. And John's like, no. Why would I baptize you? I'm not even worthy to untie your shoe. You don't need to be baptized. And Jesus said, please just do what I ask. It's the right thing to do. Why? To this very day, people are still debating that question. Why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't need to repent from anything. That's a given. Nobody argues that. And if this was a baptism of repentance, then why was he baptized? It made no sense. John didn't get it. Most theologians don't get it today either. I've been thinking on this question ever since I've read it, 20-some-odd years ago, whatever, ever since I was a believer, and I never understood why Jesus was baptized. I've read commentaries and papers, and everybody has their opinions, and none of them just struck me as being right. They're like, ah, that's an interesting opinion, but it just doesn't do it. But in putting this lesson together, I think I came across the answer. Now, I say I think. I don't know. They've been arguing about this for a thousand years. What do I know? But maybe, maybe I, I get it now. It's definitely an answer that works for me. 
until somebody comes up with a better, it's the one I'm sticking with. But remember everything I told you about baptism. John gave it a new twist, but it was already in practice for all sorts of reasons. The priests, before they could approach to serve God, were baptized. Pagans, before they were saved, were baptized. After a vow, people were baptized. Before you went up to the Temple Mount to worship God, you were baptized. So what do I know about baptism? It's ceremonial cleansing in preparation to serve and meet with God. I know why he was baptized. He was just about ready to start his ministry. So what does he do? He gets baptized by the most awesome prophet who's ever lived in preparation to meet God in ministry. I think it was kind of like an ordination for him, a ceremonial cleansing to launch him off into his ministry. Am I sure? No, but I think so. So the very next story is he goes off into the wilderness, he's tempted by the de devil, and then he gets down to Nazareth and Capernaum and starts preaching the gospel. Before that, nothing. So that's what I think was going on with his baptism, but I am not sure. One thing is for sure, his baptism was extremely unique in every respect of the word. In fact, you know, baptisms, we do them here, we, we'd like them to be public. We want people to see. It's part of testifying that we follow God now. Jesus was baptized, the only son of God who has ever been baptized. And the people that showed up at his baptism, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Fact says heaven opened up. I guess all the angels were peeking. We got to see this. Let me read to you what it says. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. Heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And one of the last things Jesus said, and I quote, before he went up to heaven, he said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Father was present, the Son was present, he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit was present. When he tells us to baptize people, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit in all of his fullness was there at Jesus' baptism. The Trinity was there. And he wants us to baptize in the name of the fullness of the Godhead also. Very unique baptism. I want to say one more thing about baptism, and then I'll let you go. You are now baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Based on what I just taught you, was I just baptized? Based on the symbolism, my hair. My hair's good. Well, this much of it. I can give it to God now. It's holy, it's purified, it's dedicated. God doesn't want my hair. He wants me. There is no such thing as sprinkle immersion or anointing immersion in the Bible. But Steve, we come from a tradition where we baptize babies, and you can't put a baby underwater. No, you shouldn't. For any reason whatsoever. But remember what John said. Repent. 
and believe. Babies can't repent or believe, so we don't baptize babies. Baptism is for people who are ready to follow God. So the idea of a sprinkle or a baptizing of a baby, it's not our belief. We believe it's symbolic of a full following of God. Can you do a little sprinkle on a baby as a dedication to God? Of course you can. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not the baptism. The baptism comes when that baby is old enough to know what sin is, chooses to reject it, and wants to follow the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, and all his might. And so his whole body is buried with Jesus in baptism and raises to a new life. That's what baptism is all about. Now, we have a tank up here. We do baptisms every few months. Um, sometimes we schedule them, but usually we just wait till somebody comes up and says, hey, you know what, Steve, I'm ready to be baptized. And then we do an announcement, and other people want to be baptized too. If you have not been baptized as a believer with the understanding of what I shared with you this morning, I would be honored, myself or Jose would love to baptize you. So just contact the church office, and we'll fill up the tank. And after one of our church services, we would be pleased to baptize you. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we offer you our entire being, body, soul, and spirit. Thank you for giving us the symbolism of the mikvah, of the baptism, of the countless pools at the base of the Temple Mount, of the Jordan River with John, and even Jesus himself being baptized in water in preparation to meet with you. Oh, Lord God, may we remember the decision we made to follow you 100%. Help us to get right with you again. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.